0: Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about University Press Publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. Today on the show, we continue what's become a bit of a series on Midwestern architecture in conversation with Susan J. Bandes to discuss the expanded paperback edition of her book, Mid-Michigan Modern, from Frank Lloyd Wright to Googie. Thanks for tuning in. From 1940 to 1970, Mid-Michigan created an extensive and varied legacy of modernist architecture. Based on archival research and oral histories, Susan J. Bandy's Mid-Michigan Modern explores that legacy in both the work of renowned architects such as Frank Lloyd Wright, Alden B. Dow, and the Keck brothers, and in the buildings of regional architects whose work was strongly influenced by international modern styles. In the growing optimism and increasing economic prosperity following World War II, the automobile industry, state government, and Michigan State University served as economic drivers, enormously expanding the mid-Michigan area. Government, professional associations, and private industry all sought an architectural style that spoke to forward-looking progressive ideals. Smaller businesses picked a prairie style that made people feel comfortable and modernist houses reflected the increasingly informal American lifestyle rooted in automobile culture. In this expanded volume that includes 36 new illustrations, readers encounter buildings of various types from residences to sacred spaces. This new edition also adds over 20 architect-designed residences along the various rivers and creeks that traverse the area as well as on man-made lakes and it introduces several popular architectural designers not previously discussed. The epilogue briefly considers disappearing modernist inventions and buildings, and a detailed narrative discusses more than 150 buildings enriched by hundreds of illustrations. Mid-Michigan Modern is a vibrant reclamation of the history of modernist architecture in this part of the state, and I'm excited to explore the book with my guest today, Susan J. Bandy's. Susan is a professor emerita of art history at Michigan State University and director of museum studies. She served as director of the Kresge Art Museum from 1986 to 2010. Susan, thank you for joining me to discuss your book today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I wonder if we could start with this sort of like almost hyper-regional focus. What is it about mid-Michigan that made it a sort of hotspot for the kind of modernist architecture you look at in the book?
1: Well, I think the focus on mid-Michigan was related to a much larger project that the State Historic Preservation Office had starting in the early 2010s to look at Michigan modern in general. And my focus was Actually, because I wanted to do some new research and teach a class in which students did primary research. And East Lansing turned out to be an obvious contribution to this bigger picture of Michigan modern. In the end, I think the focus on Mid Michigan is very much a story of other local places. We had famous architects who worked here, not so famous architects, and then very local architects. And I see mid-Michigan as an exemplar for other Midwest cities and other smaller cities that were not the location where the big-named architects worked. It's a typical story.
0: A typical story about the spread of of a sort of lifestyle ideal across the country, we should specify that the book looks pretty intensely at the sort of Lansing, East Lansing, Okamis area. And as I mentioned in the introduction, those regions of this state are important nodes. You know, you've got the seat of government in Lansing, used to have the um Oldsmobile manufacturing plant there. You've got Michigan State University in East Lansing. What was the culture like during this modernist period, um, both architecturally and sort of civically and generally in the region?
1: Well, The years I cover in the book are 1940 to 1970. And so post-World War II, get a lot of people returning to their hometowns they had money from the GI bill to go to school and so MSU was just expanding very quickly government was expanding as well as people moved to the area for the automobile industry as well there was a need a very quick need for housing and so we get the development of the suburbs And fast growing suburbs at that. There was also a dependence on the automobile, so people could live further away from the centers of the city. So, if you look at Lansing itself, its growth is pre World War II. And then, as you spread out in both directions from Lansing, you get the growth a little bit later after the war. It was a period of optimism. People believed in the American dream, in owning their own home. So all of these sort of factors come together to embrace a kind of modernist style.
0: Could you say a little bit about, you, know, you ended with the idea of modernist style and that there's something about America in this period where we're you know, thinking futuristically and we're sort of building on automobile culture. What does that mean? What does it look like in the field of architecture?
1: Good question. So modern or modernist architecture embraced some new building techniques. One thinks about the international style with steel and a lot of glass. We don't have a lot of those examples in our area, but there was an embrace of big glazing, thermopane glazing in homes. The lifestyle became less formal than earlier. So you have open plans in homes where the kitchen moves into the living room, moves into the dining area, as opposed to a 19th century house where rooms are closed off from each other. They each have a particular function in this more informal lifestyle. Things just melded and moved from one space into another. So that is also very typical of modernist architecture. I think another key factor is the way a house relates to its setting. So if you think of Typical 19th century houses, you know, they all sort of face the street. There's a little sidewalk up to the front door and it's very closed to the street. In modernist architecture, there tends to be a closed front, but a very open back. So you look at a house and you may not be able to tell what the style is or what it will look like inside. But if you went to the back, it would be totally transparent. It's the bringing of the exterior into the interior that's also characteristic of this modernist architecture. Frankly, Wright called it organic architecture so the relationship of the house to the site itself becomes very important whereas it was not so important prior to the modernist period.
0: It's really interesting because there's such a interesting tension there between the sort of stated ideals of, bringing the outside inside and integrating the house with nature. Like you think of that classic Frank Lloyd Wright falling water house where like we've literally got water, like sort of in the spaces of the home. And this other thing that you point out in the book and that you see in a lot of the designs pictured is integrating car culture. So they have these built-in carports and this sort of space for the automobile or some of the arguments that architects are making in your book about these are like modern ways of living because they're built for furnaces and they're built for the different kinds of technologies of homemaking that were inaccessible, you know, before this period in time. Do you have a sense of what the sort of relationship is between technological advancement and natural integration, you know, in the sort of modernist ideal?
1: Well, I, many houses sort of expose their technology, or buildings do that I'm thinking of, about the steel and glass buildings, so you're no longer looking at a facade that hides everything, but the structure is there, and it's a kind of mighty sort of heroic statement about what the building is and how it functions. you get that in some houses, not all of them, but you know another way that Technology is embraced is through the use of prefabricated materials, which you didn't have that prior to World War II. But it becomes a way to build quickly and strongly to use sort of supply chain (laughs) ideas, also. And that wouldn't necessarily be very visible to a person looking at a house, but it's the way the houses embraced new technologies like that.
0: One of the things that I find so interesting about your book is the idea, like just the, just the core idea of modernist architecture as a sort of new way of thinking about house and home and, and its relationship to the natural world and its employment of technology. I also am thinking about it in terms of a kind of cultural movement that it seems like some of the things you depict in the book, There's a very intentional attempt to spread these ideas, to take them up. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that looked like in Lansing. I was thinking particularly of a journalist called Warren Brintnall and another architect, Kenneth Black, who both seem to be doing a lot of attempts to spread the culture of architectural modernism.
1: Yes. And there's a wonderful quote by Kenneth Black where he says, You know, you're not going to be using the horse and buggy. We're in the car culture. So your house should reflect that new civilization, our new culture. Hall is a kind of hero to me because he wrote a lot about contemporary architecture and things, everything that was being built at the time. And he's sort of is very gently trying to pull people along to Modernist ideas. But in the end, I sort of characterize the modernism in our area as a kind of conservative or moderate modernism. People embraced some things like big windows, but they didn't embrace the steel construction. People seemed to prefer the prairie style, which was more comfortable than the sleek international style. But I don't think that we're different from other areas of the Midwest or similar population cities where there's a conservative embrace of these new ideas. It's interesting that in Ann Arbor, where there is a school of architecture, you have many more very striking modernist Houses that the architects built for themselves and then for their friends. I think our lack of a school of architecture is why our architecture looks the way it does. It's a little conservative. We're away from the the hubs of architectural education and dissemination of those ideas.
0: There's a whole chapter in the book about the kinds of houses that these architects designed and built for themselves when they weren't subject to the whims or to the affordances of their clients. One thing that really struck me about some of the early chapters, particularly the chapter on Frank Lloyd Wright, is how often these designers were putting forward ideal designs that were both more expensive than clients seemed to be able to afford and also not entirely interested in taking into account their desires or their wants their wants or needs for their homes is sort of like, well, we have this vision of ideal modernist architecture. And so I have designed this house for you. And everyone seems very pleased, but a lot of those houses don't get built. I mean, I wonder if you could say something about that sort of relationship between avant-garde thinking about housing and design, and then the sort of boots on the ground practical, like what actually happens when people come to building these things?
1: And what I really enjoyed in writing the book was discovering these stories and where the stories have a happy ending (laughs) and where they don't. And um, as you say, I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright is everybody has or everybody knows the stories of his big ego and many of his designs never get built. It was an unusual relationship that he had with like Getchen Winkler because that was a very satisfactory experience for everybody around. But for Getchen Winkler's colleagues, it tended not to be a good experience, too expensive. You know, things things just got away from the needs and the desires of the families. And I think think what some of the local architects did, uh, I'm thinking like Manson and Carver and John Kraus, they really had a feel for the area and a feel for working with clients. And so they were incredibly successful in building a lot of houses. And You know, one success leads to another success, and there's a whole area in East Lansing that's just full of these houses by Manson and Carver. They're all a little bit different from each other, but there's a formula that worked and that people enjoyed living in them. They enjoyed working with the architects.
0: I just find that that dynamic so interesting. Like the art the architect as artist. I mentioned that I've done a few interviews about architecture in the past few weeks on the show. And I talked to the author of a book about architecture in the UP. And the thing that that he thought really marked the work of this architect, Fred Charlton, was that he was essentially a a for hire worker, that he he adapted existing styles. He didn't seemed to have a lot of interest in advancing the art of architecture like in terms of the way that it would look or or how it would you know give shape to a particular area and so his work while enormously prolific came to feel really dated very quickly because it was all kind of this victorian era stuff that was not representing any particular moment in time or any individual sensibility And I feel like the modernist architecture that you're looking at has a very strong stylistic stamp and we see it sort of everywhere. How many houses are we talking about in the in the mid-Michigan region, sort of roughly?
1: Well, I concentrated on houses where I could identify the architect. You know, I wrote about 150 buildings or so. There are many, many more buildings, but I didn't know the architect and they didn't look particularly different or significant to me. But th- there are whole areas. Like I live in Tacoma Hills. And in the new chapter, I added about five houses in this area. But almost all the houses are n- mid 1950s to about 1970. Many of them look the same. They might have a front door on the different side or, you know, you start sort of seeing patterns. So there are many of those, especially the west side of Lansing, Tecumseh area, a lot in Okemos, not so many in, in East Lansing. But I was more interested in those singular houses where I could identify an architect and maybe figure out who commissioned it. And why. So those are fewer. (laughs) That said, after the book came out in 2016, people started emailing me about houses that I had missed. And I thought I had driven almost every street in East Lansing and Okamas and Lansing, but I had missed some. And the interesting thing was, two different couples who were in touch had houses along the Grand River. Well, I didn't see them because they were tucked back in the landscape, and I realized that they were two pretty spectacular houses. And then I found an article from the Lansing State Journal in 1964, where the society editor or society writer takes a pontoon ride along the Grand River in Lansing, and she mentioned those two houses in addition to others. So when I was told by the MSU Press that the book was almost out of print and would be coming out in paperback, I said, how about an expanded chapter and it would be houses along the river. So that's the focus. I sort of stuck in a few other houses, not along the river, but either by the same architect or architectural designer or made sense in including them in the the new chapter. So houses along the river, the riverfront properties tend to be a little bit more expensive than other properties. So the tendency is to hire an architect. Uh, So it was a ripe sort of (laughs) subject to be looking for. And I had completely overlooked it. I am sure there are many more houses that I missed because I didn't drive on a particular road or they were hidden from... The road. I've done a lot of Google Earth looking <laughs> during this, but there's still more to discover.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Susan J. Bandes, author of Mid-Michigan Modern from Frank Lloyd Wright to Googie. It's really interesting to hear about the addition of this river tour and that the, the houses are more glorious, you know, from the river side than they are from the street side. You'd also mentioned that these things were appearing—you know, the kinds that you're looking for—where they're designed by a single architect or hired by a known firm. That a lot of those are appearing, sort of, in the Okemos area, East Lansing area. In the book, it seems like a lot of MSU faculty members were doing commissioning of this kind of of this kind of building. Would you say that that that's pretty common among the houses, or were they commissioned by a certain? kind of class or group of people?
1: Early on, like in the 1940s or a little bit earlier, there's the group that commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to do the Usonia community. And that was a matter of economics in part, buying land together, the idea of building at the same time so they could buy wholesale what they needed for the structures. And then that follows a couple of years later in the early 40s with the Lantern Hill development. And again, it was a group of young faculty. There was no place to live. They picked this property that had been farmland and sort of far enough away that it was undeveloped, but affordable to them. And so that was a big project too. those people who built were building very modest homes. Since then, all those Lantern Hill houses have been expanded and significantly changed. And in the new chapter, I continue the Lantern Hill story because there were about 40 plots and only a certain portion of them were built by faculty members using Hugh Stubbins, the architect. The second phase of that Lantern Hill area continues north. And there was no longer any desire to use the same architects. So the style of houses is quite different. But there are two that are pretty spectacular that were built at the same time, and they sort of relate to each other on the same side of the road. And I included those because the architect was the same architect who built the house on Locust Lane in Lansing, which is on the river. So I was able to sort of make a connection. I I had not known the architect. His name was R.B. Sloan. So I discovered this architect and then happened to find these two other houses by him. So now we have you know three houses and you can see his style and they're pretty spectacular. The two in Lansing were built for a provost and a vice president. So the economic basis is, has risen a little bit. They're not the faculty, the new faculty members, the assistant professors who built the very modest Lantern Hill first phase homes.
0: Do you know on the other side of that coin, as modernism spreads and sort of taste for this architecture and, and living in this style seems to spread, it also we talked a little bit about like prefabricated interiors, but it seems like during this period there was also some attempt to like start making prefab homes in the style
1: yes and and in the book i have one chapter on the trade secret home which is prefab but it was not inexpensive the buildings trade association got together and asked all of their members, what's the one thing you would want in a house that is, you know, up to date, very modern. And so this house was put together and it was featured in Life magazine. And there are trade secret houses all over the country. They all look the same because they all came from the same kit. But I also discovered another so-called kit house by Donald Schultz from Toledo. And there's one in Tacoma Hills that I write about you could get a small, a medium, a large house. You could get it two bedrooms, four bedrooms, six bedrooms, just depending on how much money you want to spend. And the one that's in Tacoma Hills is kind of middle of the road and was built for one of the local, very well-known builders, Koshwa and Miller. And this was Miller's house. So it's interesting that he would go to basically prefab house to build his own. And it it's a really spectacular looking house, both from the street and, and inside. So prefabs came in all different <laughs> shapes and sizes and costs.
0: And when you say a kit, like what kinds of things came predetermined or, or was it literally just out of the box, you know, assemble as you desire in your location?
1: The trusses came, the walls came, the windows came, (laughs) and people could tweak them a little bit. You know, the siding came. So these big trucks would come from Toledo and deposit (laughs) all the pieces that you would need. There were architectural plans that people could change a little bit. And the one in Tacoma Hills actually has a basement area that was not indicated in the version B of this particular house.
0: It's fascinating. So, there's a sort of this like set of available options that you could just have trucked over and an in instant modernist home. Right, right. We've been talking a lot about sort of individual residences and places where people, you know, might want something customized for their own living and, you know, whatever their sort of ideal domicile is. I wonder about this mid-Michigan modern aesthetic when it comes to civic buildings? Where did we see you know these things appearing in civic spaces?
1: Well, the, the best example and the one I really like a lot is Lansing City Hall. And that is a very good example of international style. That's got all the glazing on the exterior and the steel structure that you can see. And there, there was a specific reason for doing that city government wanted to project the idea that they were forward looking so the model that they took was the Seagram building in New York and this was something that happened all over the country you can see it in Grand Rapids you can see it in Detroit so the model for these civic buildings bespeak the future you know and optimism and the architecture sort of adumbrates what the government wanted to be known for. You know, nobody wants to be in a Victorian building that looks so backwards and old-fashioned that you wonder what possibly new or innovative could be going on in the building. So, in fact, the Lansing City Hall replaced a Victorian building, which nowadays we would never tear it down, but in the 50s, they did, (laughs)
0: Could you describe that building a little? I mean, I, I think I'm accustomed to thinking about like a prairie style home, you know, long, low to the ground, wide eaves, you know, sort of earth tones, that sort of thing. What does that look like, you know, as a, as a style for, you know, a city hall or a skyscraper?
1: Okay. So very little ornament, you know, flat facades, flat roof, glass and steel, sometimes in at city hall you have these co- interior columns so very structurally evident how the building is standing up and you also have a kind of open piazza in the front or a plaza that is welcoming to the building and sort of humanizes the scale of the building those are pretty typical aspects for this more avant-garde International style of modernism.
0: Did they have particular complaints about ornament?
1: Well, ornament was unnecessary. It had no function. So, if you're of the school that form should be paramount and form follows function, then you don't need to cover it up. You don't need to add to it.
0: I asked the question about ornament because it seems like we mentioned a couple of times buildings in the Victorian style. And, you know, you think of the grand white columns and the carved doors on the Supreme Court and all of these sort of trappings of authority and, you know, the sort of reverence of civic spaces. So it's interesting to have the kind of opposite take on it, where it's like, the building is a gesture toward the innovative new work that goes on inside, but it's not sort of broadcasting that with particular decorations or something along those ways. I wonder what that looks like when it comes to churches. You know, when you start to think about sacred spaces, they're often like elaborately ornamented and designed and sort of grandiose. What did the modernists do uh, to churches in this region?
1: There are a lot of churches in our area that were built from the 50s to the 70s as populations grew and new congregations formed, they needed new structures. And there was a kind of crisis in church architecture at this time because people associated things like Gothic architecture with sacred spaces. And architects were struggling to come up with structures that made sense technologically but also had that sense of the sacred. And there are many A-frame churches. If you read about A-frame churches, there are all sorts of excuses for why people use that structure. Praying hands or you know, looks like a steeple. In fact, it was a very economical way to build. And we we have many examples of these spaces. Another thing that was happening was congregations were changing and the liturgy was changing. And uh, in the Protestant faith, there was an interest in everybody being equal within the church and everybody participating, not being passive. So a typical passive space would be a church with a long nave and you're all facing the priest who's officiating sometimes with his back to the congregation. So there was a lot of discussion and changes in the liturgy to place the altar in the center of the space and people all around in a circle. So you get a lot of churches at this time with this centrally planned space and then sort of sweeping slopes of the roof up to a peak in the center of the building. And that did away with the need for a bell tower, which was an extra structure and expensive, but also made use of wood that could be bent in ways that was in those ways were impossible prior to World War II. A lot of the technology came through military uses and plywood was first sort of used by the army and then became used for furniture. So in churches, and I'm thinking of Edgewood Church in East Lansing or Martin Luther Chapel, they have these mighty structural wood curved pieces that support the building and allow for a very open space underneath. Um, That was not really that possible in earlier structures. It was so difficult to figure out what style to build a church in or a chapel. And reading the Lansing State Journal uh, for any given year in, 19, in the 1950s, there are churches going up and one's colonial and one's gothic revival and one's modern and one's A-frame. There was a real mix, mishmash of styles.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of our, our talk a little earlier about the sort of hidden culture of buildings not built in this modernist period, all of the kinds of like things that were designed that weren't built. It's a good reminder that the city is made up of layers of all kinds of different styles. So while this is going on, folks are still building, you know, colonial style, gothic style, but that modernism is something that they might be picking to express particular values or to like take advantage, as you say, of new kinds of spaces that seem to resonate with their views on egalitarianism or participation or whatever those other kinds of ideals might be. I wanted to ask, I have a couple of questions um, that, that sort of rise out of the end of the book and are a little more broad thinking about, I don't know if it's historiography exactly, but the book ends with this very short, really compelling epilogue about technologies in these modernist homes. And we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, they're designed to to work with furnaces or they're designed to move air in particular kinds of ways to take advantage of advances in in home technology. And you point out at the end, some of the, the features of these homes that were designed for, you know, what seemed to be, you know, the newest and greatest technology that has now sort of fallen out of fashion. So like in-wall vacuum cleaners or wall hanging fridges and freezers. You mentioned even some of these homes had bomb shelters built into them coming from that sort of period of Cold War fear over the the bomb. And the other thing that you talk about are women's urinals in public spaces, this fad that that I had no idea about that there was for a time this uh, desire to have urinals in women's rooms like in men's rooms to separate folks and shorten lines and those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the technology and I'm curious about it, but I think it, it also resonates with an earlier point in your book about who these architects were, and they seem to have been almost all men or there was maybe one or two women who were practicing. And so it leads me to ask a sort of larger, broader question about, about gender in architecture. Is, was this a particularly male endeavor or is there something about the separation of genders that accounts for the things we see in this architecture or, or the field more broadly?
1: I think the field is still dominated by men. And it did occur to me as I was working on the expanded version that I had not encountered a single female architect. So I went digging around and looking and did a lot of research in the American Institute of Architects historical biographies, in which they list everybody who is certified as an architect. Every 10 years they did it, and you can get a lot of information. And I only found Two women, and I don't know what they built. One worked for the state. I couldn't identify any building that she might have done herself. The other architect started in one office and then went off on her own. But to this day, I don't know what they built. I started counting up how many architects, women architects, are in our area now, and it's still a handful. It's a field that's dominated by men. The landscape architecture field is a little bit different. And I do discuss one landscape architect, Jane Smith, whose family is Smith Trees, is still exists locally. And there were a few other women landscape architects. And in looking at the situation today, there seem to be more women, certainly, than in the architecture field. Architecture was remains male dominated and unfortunately we had very few women in the period that I was researching
0: it's egregious to even to even frame the question this way but like outrageous misogyny aside do you have like speculation as to why that might be like we've seen other um, intensely male dominated fields have been more welcoming to women and and we've seen you know women have made advances in a lot of places where They had been shut out before. Is there something about architecture particularly that accounts for that?
1: I don't know. But some of the women we now know about worked for people like Frank Lloyd Wright and were in his studio. So like anybody in his studio, those names get lost and we're only now just sort of rediscovering them. So that might be one thing about it.
0: I think you make such a good point there and and it's a a real question that I've been thinking about a fair bit in these conversations about architecture and and when you you know point out someone like Frank Lloyd Wright or, or other that so much of this is work done by many people that's then funneled through you know the individual whose name is on the firm, and so it's possible we're looking at a history of erasure of the labor of women or the contributions of women who were all just sort of subsumed under the name of whoever happened to to be the you know the final stamp on the finished product we see that a lot in literature too there's just tons of of women in the history of literature who served as a and did intense revising for the men who you know ended up with their names on the books at the very end
1: hoping they're a little bit more welcoming to women now and i can think of several stark attacks who are women but the number is still small compared to men. I don't really know what the answer to that question is.
0: Yeah, it's a hard question, but I feel like it's so important to point out the different layers underneath all of these things when we start digging into this to this history and looking at you know where these buildings came from and who had the ideas and and how they came together. I wanted to ask, you know, I gave that spiel about all the technology, and I wondered if you had thoughts about what. We might look back on in our homes now as the same kind of strange oddities of the wall hanging fridge and freezer or the women's urinal, the sort of things that we're you know, putting in all of our houses that in 50 years time, we'll look back in puzzlement as to why that was a, a prominent idea.
1: What strikes me as bizarre is how big houses have become. And the mishmash of styles that they're built in, you know, they have strange personalities, uh, a little of this and a little of that, and big atriums and big windows that are hard to heat. And I think to me, it's just a question of why do the houses have to be so big? Why is that ego driven? It's not driven by necessity and i just assume that in these really big houses half the rooms are never used and i guess a, a bizarre kind of thing that's happened lately is the growth of the kitchen space and how big kitchens have become taking over sort of living rooms and dining rooms and but i just look around and i i you can tell a 1950s building And then you see some of these 1980s and 90s, and they have bizarre styles. I'm not even sure I would call them styles. They're um, postmodern. They look back to some things and forward to other things. So I think we're in a period where we don't know exactly where the next fashion will be. And so everything goes right now in ways that don't make a lot of sense to me.
0: <laughs> I like that answer. I wonder, we're sort of at that time of the year uh, where folks are, you know, hopping in their cars to cruise around and look at leaves and, you know, take, take in the sort of last of the temperate weather before we start to get snow. And in many ways, the book is a kind of guided tour of modern architecture in, in this region. If people wanted to get out this fall and explore some of these buildings, where would you suggest that they start, and what would you recommend that they make sure to see?
1: When I did the exhibition at uh, the MSU Museum focusing on East Lansing architecture, I also did a driving and biking tour of East Lansing. And you can find it on the website of the State Historic Preservation Office, or just Google... Michigan Modern. It's michiganmodern.org. And they have a series of tours. There are several for Detroit. There's one for Ann Arbor and then the East Lansing one. So I was limited to 16 sites and limited in the amount of information I could give for each. But if people are interested in East Lansing, it covers some residential areas and also some churches but I'd also say drive Grand River and start at Playmakers, which is used to be a grocery store, and travel west. And you pass Bell's Pizza, which is a great example of Googie architecture, and head all the way down into Lansing and end up at Lansing City Hall or the, the Capitol Area Library, which is another great building. And then you could also look at some of the suburbs, like Tacoma Hills on the west side of town, the area around Tecumseh River Drive. It's a good time to go because the leaves will be falling and you could actually see the buildings.
0: (laughs) Well, that sounds really, really, truly lovely. And I will put a link to um, the MichiganModern.org website in the show notes for folks who might want to check that out. Susan, it's been a real joy to uh, spend some time with your book, to think about you know, the many layers of history and wonderful architecture that I drive by sort of on my daily meanderings around town and to be able to start thinking about it you know, through a different lens and its place in cultural history and architectural history. I, I've really so enjoyed uh, spending time with your book and this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, and thank you for your great questions. <laughs> I appreciate them.
0: The expanded paperback edition and the original hardcover version of Susan J. Bandis's Mid-Michigan Modern, from Frank Lloyd Wright to Googie, are both available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. University resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.